From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. If you listen to gun control advocates and the media, the gun industry is a bad actor. It profits from gun violence. It uses deceptive advertising to target youth and criminals. And federal law protects the industry from all liability. Is any of this true? Or is it just a false narrative designed to attack the gun industry and open the door to predatory and expensive lawsuits. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Amy Swearer, Legal Fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies with the Heritage Foundation. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Amy, I've been reading some of your articles lately on guns and gun rights at heritage.org, And I think I started because your articles just started showing up in some of the news feeds that I get. And I I was really impressed with how you're able to cut right to the heart of an issue. There's one particular article I'd like to discuss with you. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Heritage Foundation, where your articles appear? Yeah, absolutely. So the Heritage Foundation, we are the nation's largest conservative think tank. Uh, We're out in Washington, D.C., right here on Capitol Hill. And our mission really is to build an America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish. Um, it's, It's very important to us. So we're here to essentially formulate and promote public policies uh, you know, that are based on principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom. Um, and in, in, at least in my case, that includes uh, talking about the, the Second Amendment and, and sort of how we protect that right to keep and bear arms from a conservative standpoint. So you are a legal fellow at the mm-hmm. Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judi- Judicial Studies. I want to get that right. So what, what is that? And what does a legal fellow do? Uh, so the way I like to explain this is in a lot of respects, my mom got the last laugh. My mom always used to tell me, hey, Amy, you're going to be a, you're going to be a teacher one day. And I'd be like, I'm never going to be a teacher. Uh, it turns out that, that, that that's basically what I am. Um, so I my job as a legal fellow is to think about and understand both you know, the law, the Constitution and good public policy to, to do that thinking you know, right right there in, in the name think tank. Um to, to do that full time and then to help other people, whether it's policymakers, uh, whether it's um, your average American, whether it's listeners on this podcast or college students um, or, or anybody, whoever that audience is, to help them understand themselves how to think uh, correctly about public policy, um, about the, the, the laws and the policies that affect them on a day to day basis. Um, so that's how I like to view my job is, is really as a, as a teacher. So, so you get paid to think and tell people about your thoughts. That that's quite a gig. I I really um, I'm envious. It's it's an amazing job. I wish actually more people thinking about law school understood uh, that public policy jobs exist uh, and that it is a career path you can take. Uh, I'd also say, especially if you're 
uh, in college or in law school right now and and you're like, wow, that sounds really interesting. This is a shameless plug for the Heritage Foundation's uh, internship program, our Young Leaders program. Um, we'd, we'd love to have you check it out. Um, you can learn a lot more about public policy and, and the, the jobs that we do here. And, and we'd, we'd love to have you check it out. So how did you come to specialize in firearm topics? I mean, did you grow up with guns? Was this a family thing? How did you get interested in this really specific issue? Oh, I, I always love this question because I think a lot of people expect uh, for me to say, yeah, no, I, I grew up with guns and this was always, you know, my, my immediate interest. It's what I went to law school to do. And it, it's not at all. Um, I actually did not grow up really with firearms. Yeah, I yeah, grew up with a, a respect for firearms and, and the Second Amendment. Um, one of the few times uh, I, I, you know, I can count on one hand the number of times my dad really really got mad at me. And it was, you know, when I was playing around with one of my grandfather's like antique, you know, locked up, you know, I don't even think there's an operable firearm, but, you know, I've learned very early the rules of gun safety. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't otherwise have firearms. Um, I went to law school to do criminal law. Um, and I, I ended up almost just by accident, stumbling my way into public policy from, uh, the the arena of overcriminalization. This idea we have too many laws. We're throwing people in prison for you know, things that are not inherently obviously wrong. That they had no idea were were illegal, um, and that are just punishing normal behaviors. And I started writing on the Second Amendment through that. You know, th this idea of responding to to mass shootings, for example, by punishing law abiding citizens, um, just never really made sense to me. Um, and it was from there that I, you know, I, I sort of grew into the, the Second Amendment space um, because it, it turns out there's a lot to talk about uh, it, in terms of, you know, what's going on in the United States. It's sort of you know, very clearly a full time job at this point, um, looking at the Second Amendment and, and helping people understand its importance, uh, you know, but both at the time of the founding and, and today. Um, so, no, it's a sort of roundabout way. Um, at least in terms of my my public career. I'd like the record to reflect, though, I've now since turned my family into a gun-owning family. So, oh, well, good. We, we, we got there eventually. <laughs> so the uh, article that I want to talk about is called Debunking Myths About the Big Bad Gun Industry. And you lay out very clearly this narrative that is quite uh, popular now among gun control advocates and in the media and the narrative is that the gun industry is a bad actor and they profit off of gun violence and they use deceptive advertising to target youth, to target criminals. And there are these federal laws that prevent the industry from being held accountable. And isn't this such a bad thing? Now, what the proponents of this narrative want is for these protections to be repealed so gun makers can be held accountable uh, my translation would be sued into oblivion. So um, the, let's just go, go through these myths. And the first myth that you present is this idea that Congress gave the gun industry some kind of special protection that makes it completely immune from all liability. Now, what they're referring to is the 2005 PLCAA, or the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. But is it really true that this gives them special protection, that this shields the gun industry from all liability? Amy, can you just explain what the PLCAA is and why it was actually passed? 
Sure. Yeah. So, you, so you hear all the time. You're right uh, about oh, this this complete immunity. They're they're the only industry that can't ever be sued for anything, and it's just not true. So, when you look at the history of that law, um, it was passed in 2005 um, by an overwhelmingly bipartisan Congress, um, and it's not true at all that it completely immunizes the gun industry from all civil liability. Um, so, it, it was designed for a, a specific purpose. So, the background of this is that in the early 2000s and, and late 1990s, gun control advocates started to realize um, they, they if they went through the democratic process of trying to pass the laws that they wanted, one, they were proving to be not as popular or having the amount of broad support that they wanted. Uh, to get them passed. And, and two, they were running into constitutional concerns. And, and so the idea was, okay, we are going to start suing, you know, so learning some of the, or t- taking some of the lessons they learned from like fights against big tobacco. They said, she said, we are going to sue the gun industry at every opportunity. Um, and we're going to sue them uh, over frivolous claims, trying to say that they are responsible, not for doing anything wrong in and of themselves, uh, but for selling guns that people then later use to commit criminal actions. Um, so essentially providing the means that other people then abused to hurt other people. And, and the goal wasn't actually to win these lawsuits. It was to keep these fire manufacturers and sellers uh, essentially perpetually bogged down in, again, frivolous, but very expensive and time-consuming lawsuits. And they hoped that eventually by doing that, they, they could just get the gun industry to agree, you know, like voluntarily to cave to their policy demands, um, to, to sort of strong arm the industry into doing uh, the, the sorts of measures they couldn't get passed into law in the first place. Uh, and so as a result of this, Congress passed the PLCAA. And what it does is say, okay, you can't bring these lawsuits anymore. You can't bring lawsuits against gun manufacturers or sellers on this theory that while well, they're liable, for harm caused by third parties who use the gun in an unlawful manner. But that's it, right? So the gun industry, again, whether it's manufacturers or sellers, they can still be held liable and sued for a whole host of other widely recognized tort claims, just like any other business. So like selling defective products. Um, so if they sell you a gun that explodes in your hand, right? Or if they make false advertisements about, you know, this gun can fire a thousand rounds a minute uh, and it can't. Um, you know, if they if they fail to abide by state and federal laws, right? So if like if they don't keep up their record keeping or they intentionally knowingly sell to felons or don't conduct background checks, those sorts of things, you can absolutely sue them for harms that they actually cause. What you can't do is say, well, they're at fault because someone else used the gun that they legally sold to them to commit a crime. Um, and I want to be very clear to any extent that this is some sort of special protection, and I'm more than happy to explain why it's not. There are other industries that have sort of similar protections, though it is, it's not exactly common, but it exists. To any extent that it is unique, it's because the gun industry was facing a unique threat. It turns out other industries don't have this problem from advocates who just want it to no longer exist and want to sue them into oblivion to kneecap a lawful industry. Um, so that's the PLCAA. And, and this, this myth of, well, it just makes them completely immune so they can do whatever they want all the time and never be held accountable. It's absolute hogwash. It's a complete rewriting of history. So gun makers can be sued just like any other company for ordinary product liability. So for example, I buy a Ford truck 
the brakes don't work, Ford can be held accountable for that. Because, you know, if I'm hurt or family members are killed, but if I buy a truck, a Ford truck, and I run down 10 people on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. Ford can't be held accountable for that because they didn't cause it. It, it wasn't a, a function of their product. That was a function of my actions. Is that a right. fair way to, to differentiate? Right. That, that's, that's exactly what it is. Or, or you know, for example, um, if victims of drunk drivers, right, uh, sued, again, not, not even the alcohol industry, but the, the car manufacturer saying, well, you should have known that your car could be driven by a drunk driver somewhere down the road and that that could kill someone. And so therefore you're at fault because you never should have sold a car to someone who you had, you know, again, no, who had a driver's license, who you had no reason to suspect was dangerous. Uh, But somehow it's your fault and not the fault of the person driving the car in a drunken manner. Um, So you're right. That's, that's a good way of, uh, of putting it. So what gun control advocates are really trying to do is basically they know they have to redefine the purpose and intent of firearms, gun makers and gun owners, in order to change the legal landscape, right? They're sort of, they've got an argument and they have to backfill the argument to change what what all of this is about so that they can arrive at this idea that you can sue gun manufacturers. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, I, I think there's, uh, for a lot of people who were, you know, wanting to do the, these mass lawsuits um, prior to the PLCAA, I, I honestly think there's a good argument that a lot of them weren't even necessarily interested in winning the lawsuits that it seemed to be about. Uh, because again, e- even if these are frivolous lawsuits that the, the gun control advocates never win, uh, what it does is it's expensive and time consuming and scares the industry because they have to defend against these lawsuits. And so again, sort of the the, the premise was, well, if we just keep suing them, one, we're going to scare other uh, people from wanting to go into that industry. And two, maybe we can get them to do what we want. We'll say, we'll stop suing you if you stop suing or if you stop selling guns that we don't want you to sell, or if you, you know, quote, voluntarily uh, refuse to sell to law-abiding citizens who are under the age of 21. Um, so it was, it was a strong arm tactic uh, as much as it was this idea of, well, we're actually going to try to hold them, you know, quote, accountable um, because they've done something wrong. So I think you've got sort of both problems there. And I think it's important to understand that the gun industry, despite what a lot of people think or the claims made, they're actually a pretty small industry compared to other industries. So I was just Googling this a little bit, and the entire gun and ammo industry makes maybe $20 billion a year. And then you look at a company like Amazon, that one company alone makes something like $470 billion. In other words, one company makes 24 times what the entire gun industry makes. Amy, the, the gun makers just can't absorb these massive predatory lawsuits, right? I mean, not, not only does it keep them tied up, but for a lot of them, a lot of gun makers are actually very small. They could just be totally put out of business. Right, right. Uh, especially if you're not talking about uh, going after manufacturers or you know big you know, common manufacturers, but your your actual single uh, federal firearms licensee, your your single mom and pop gun store, um, you know to go after them to say, oh well, you sold the gun that you know th- three years down the line was used to kill someone. Um, it, you're you're right; it absolutely 
can. Um, you know, they're not some big massive company, but even the, even the the, the larger companies uh, comparatively within the industry, it, that's a lot of time, energy, and effort. Uh, you know, the, these are not defending. Uh, these lawsuits are, are not cheap. Uh, they're not easy. And, and so again, it's it's very much a strong arm tactic. So let's look at the second myth that you look at um, in this article, and that's the gun industry makes enormous profits off of criminal violence and should therefore be forced to foot the bill for its cost. So now, why are gun control advocates so incensed that gun makers actually turn a profit? That seems a little disingenuous to me. They act as if it's wrong to want to make money from selling illegal product. Right. And this this has never you know, this is one of those arguments that at the end of the day, I'm I'm less and less convinced that the people making this argument really believe it as much as like they, they will do anything to paint anybody within the industry as a bad actor. Um, I mean, look, they, they make money, whether it's gun manufacturers or gun stores um, or anybody in between. They make money because they sell products that millions of ordinary law-abiding Americans want to buy. Um, you know, this idea that they're sort of perpetuating criminal violence and they know it and it's good for business if there are a lot of criminals, uh, it, it's it's hogwash. Um, you know, these, and honestly, unlike a lot of other industries where it's, just, you know, your generic products that are, are good for civil society, we're dealing with a constitutional right. right? The products that they're selling, the firearms, the ammunition, these all able enable law-abiding Americans to exercise a fundamental constitutional right, um, which in in turn at the base of that right is self-defense. It's being able to effectively defend yourselves and others from criminals who would harm them. Um, you know, it's, it, again, it, a lot of this just comes across as, as doing anything, anything to, to paint the gun industry as a bad a- actor, just because it wants to do what any other industry does, which is to be profitable. Um, you know, and, and that's that's the case with again every industry, even those that can be misused. You know, whether it's cars that we talked about, cars can be misused for horrible ends. Um, you know, baseball bats, knives, alcohol, uh, medications. These can all be misused, and yet we don't sit around decrying. At least in most industries, we don't sit around decrying. Oh no, they they made a profit off of products that somewhere down the road, someone can criminally misuse or abuse. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the gun manufacturers and sellers who comply with federal law are not the ones inflicting harm on innocent people any more than Ford or Mitsubishi are the ones inflicting harm on people because of drunk drivers. Um, and to go around and scapegoat them for the actions of criminals uh, many of whom broke the law illegally to obtain their firearms, right? They're not even going to these gun stores to be like, yes, we we are as criminals would like to buy these guns. They're getting them through illegitimate channels on the black market uh, through through straw purchases, uh, you know, to, to somehow suggest that this is the gun seller's fault. Uh, it's it's logically unsound. So there's a third myth that you outline, and this takes the second myth, I think, a little bit further that the gun industry their advertisements actually incite criminal activity and they contribute to mass shootings. So again, you know, we're talking about, I I think all of this gets back to this ploy to get around the PLCAA and their specific claims are just silly. And you give a a really good 
example, I think this comes directly from your article, there was a recent lawsuit against Glock that the company should be liable for a mass shooting on a New York City subway train because its advertisements emphasize the concealability of the gun and the magazine capacity, traits which uh, they allege are appealing to prospective buyers with criminal intent. Now, Amy, my carry gun is a Glock 19. Mm -hmm. It's highly concealable. It has a decent magazine capacity. I guess I probably looked at some ads before I, I got that particular firearm. So because I wanted it to be concealable and I wanted it to have a good magazine capacity, I guess I have criminal intent, right? Right. Yeah, I, this is, I mean, again, these arguments are illogical on their face. And I think when, when you see how this would work in, in any other industry, um, it again, it becomes so clear just how absurd this is. Um, so, so let's take this and put it again. I, I like the, the car context, right? So if you have a car manufacturer that, and, and you see this all the time, it's like, okay, um, look at all this room and the, the space in the car, look at how fast it goes. You know, it can go from zero to 60 and, you know, X number of seconds. Uh, those are normal things. We're like, okay, well, yeah, no, people like storage space. They, they like cars that, you know, can, can go pretty fast or get good gas mileage or what have you. Uh, and then, you know, you, you turn around and say, oh, well, you know, anytime there's uh, a drunk driver who went really fast or someone who was speeding or, you know, someone who used an SUV to run people down, well, the the car industry should have known better than to advertise the, these, these characteristics of a car that could be used for unlawful purposes to harm somebody. That, that's absurd. Though the things that they are advertising, to, to put this back into the, the firearm perspective, the things that they're advertising, concealability, magazine capacity, those are perfectly lawful things. It, these are things that law-abiding citizens can reasonably believe they benefit from and can be used in a lawful context. Um, you know, even in even in states like New York, concealability. You can get a concealed carry permit. In fact, you cannot open carry. You know, were they going to advertise, well, look at how well you can open carry this in a state like New York where you can't open carry legally. Um, there, there's nothing inherently criminal about that. Um, you know, even if you're in a state uh, that limits magazine capacity. So what? So so what? Uh, you know, you're still advertising a product that for the vast majority of Americans outside of that state is perfectly legal. Um, you know, so it just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, again, especially this concealability one in, in a state like New York, that's more than just desirable. It's actually a legal necessity if you want to lawfully carry in public that your gun be concealable. Um, and you see this all the time. And then on top of that, um, you know, with with lawsuits, particularly like this one against Glock, uh, I, I've yet to see any evidence brought forward that the individual who used that firearm for that mass shooting. This is the same thing I, I'd say with the, the the Sandy Hook lawsuit against Remington. No evidence whatsoever that the person actually using that gun illegally saw those advertisements and was induced into buying this particular gun for these evil purposes because, oh, well, you know, here's here's this advertisement I saw that said it's concealable. 
Um, that's just illogical, um, you know, especially with uh, the, the the Sandy Hook one, the the lawsuit against Remington. Um, the reason that individual used that firearm is that it's the firearm his mother already possessed at home. Um, you know, it, it was the one that was most readily available to him. Um, you know, th- there's no suggestion that 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 Remington went around and, and somehow induced him to to buy this gun, or that if he had bought a different gun instead, it would have been less deadly. It just there's no rhyme or reason or logic to any of this, except to sort of have this this public scare tactic of of trying to convince people who don't know any better. Well, look at how evil these companies are. It's uh, again, there, there's just not a whole lot more to say except there's no logic. There's no logic here. Don't you think that the gun control advocates are the ones who are actually guilty of the deceptive advertising? I mean, for example, you know, they look at ordinary rifles. The AR-15 is the most popular rifle in the United States, and they call that an assault weapon. And they claim that its only purpose is to murder as many people as possible. That's deceptive advertising, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I had a congressman during a, a congressional hearing not too long ago, uh, talking about this, and and he stole one of the the gun control talking points, and and he just started shouting about how well the the only purpose of the AR-15 is for hunting humans. It's about hunting humans, hunting humans, hunting humans, um, which is straight out of the gun control playbook. That's absurd. If if that were the case, and I, I actually brought this up and and as as my rebuttal to him, if that's the case, then why do we routinely give these to police officers who are not waging warfare? They're not hunting humans. Um, you know, you'd essentially have to be like every police officer out there who also uses these is waging offensive warfare against somebody. It's it's just absurd that this is the only use for an AR-15 is to murder people very well. And I mean, part of the gun control crowd actually believes that. I mean, there is some overlap between the sort of the anti-police movement out there who would like to demilitarize the, uh, the, the police departments and they don't want them to have the ARs. And uh, they don't want them to have anything that's that's uh, enables them to uh, defend themselves. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there, yeah, there's it, you know that that's there, that's there, kind there of just some overlap. Though though I will point out, at, at least in the, the the context of a congressional hearing, um, Congress seems to have no problem with you know having armed uh, guards with AR-15s protecting them. Um, so I, I I'm not sure how much that applies to to some of that, but I I, I will grant you that that there are. There are some people who who would, you know, but again, I think this comes down to a lot of gun control advocates, not just in a police context, um, but in, in a general context, see any gun as, as having no purpose other than, you know, the, the criminal murder of, of, of people. It comes down again to uh, th- this idea that, um, you know, all guns are bad. You, you could never possibly have a good reason for them as though self-defense, defense of innocent life is not a good reason. So all of these myths that we've been discussing are political attacks on the gun industry, but the gun control advocates also attack gun owners. Now, you testified before Congress in July of this year. Is that correct? I, I testified several times this summer. Okay, but, well. Uh, yes, once, well, I, once, once in July. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and then one of the topics you, you addressed at, at that particular hearing was this lie that gun violence is direct directly related to gun ownership. So, you know, guys like me or just ordinary people who own guns, they're responsible for violent crime. And you argued that criminal gun violence is not substantially driven by the lawful 
gun owners. Can you summarize the remarks you made on that? Yeah. So um, again, the the logic here uh, from the the gun control crowd seems to be that well, you have all of these these uh, Americans legally buying guns, and this somehow is logically connected and causally connected to gun violence. Uh, and the reality is that that doesn't match up with what we know of who commits most gun crimes. Now, to, to be clear, there are uh, a small minority of you know, people who uh, acquired their guns legally who will at some point uh, use their firearms to harm other people uh, or to harm themselves. And that is that is bad. And we should deal with that. No one is sitting here saying that's a good thing. Um, you know, including things like unintentional firearm injuries or, or deaths. Um, but that's a very, very small percentage of the overall problem. When you look at who is committing most gun crimes, there's absolutely no evidence that it's lawful gun owners. In fact, uh, you know, you, you can look at this even just broadly, right? Dur during um, the, the 1990s and early 2000s, we saw a dramatic drop in violent crime rates, homicide rates, gun crime rates specifically. Um, it plummeted in half and, and in some, some cases even more than that, despite the fact that at the same time nationwide, the number of guns per capita increased by about 50%, right? So to, to whatever extent there might be a correlation, it's really hard to show that it's causal, right? Be, because you saw the opposite during tw a 20-year period in the United States. But when you look at, on the flip side of this, what we know about who is committing violent crimes, most of those individuals who, who we arrest for homicide, who we arrest for, uh, for, for gun crimes and, and violent crimes, they are already prohibited from possessing firearms. Um, and on top of that, they obtain their guns through illegal or informal channels. These are not law-abiding citizens who legally procured their guns. Um, so they're, they're not, you know, your, your average gun owner who went down to the gun store and, you know, bought an AR-15 for Christmas, right? These are individuals who we've already said in the law, you know, you cannot possess a firearm and they still got one. And it was a crime for them to possess it. It was a crime for them to harm someone else. And they simply got around those channels, Right. So, so to sit there and to say, oh, well, it's, it's the law-abiding gun owners, there's no evidence for that. In fact, everything is to the contrary, that most of these individuals are serial offenders. It's a small number of serial offenders who are responsible for a majority of violent crimes. They already shouldn't have guns, uh, and yet they obtain those guns through illegal or informal channels. Um, you know, it, it's just it's not the evidence we have. So, you know, this comes back to this thing that I see all the time about conflating criminals and gun owners. You know, a lot of people will conflate legal immigrants with illegal immigrants in order to make their mm -hmm. arguments. And we see that happening with gun control advocates where they conflate legal gun owners with illegal gun owners. I've actually heard people testifying at the Ohio State House that law-abiding gun owners are only law-abiding until they pull the trigger. In other words, we're all just criminals and mass murderers in waiting. Now, I've long thought that the fight over gun control, and I know you're a lawyer. I want to pull you out of the, the legal world for a second mm -hmm. just to comment on this. I've long thought that 
this whole gun control debate is largely just a part of a larger culture war. And, you know, I'm sure that a lot of it's just ignorance on the part of gun control folks because they seem to know very little about guns or crime. I'm sure that a lot of it is just cynical lies to advance political careers and policies. But I really do think that a lot of this is about a battle over a worldview. You know, what kind of America do we want to live in? Do we want to, to live in America with guns or without guns? When you look at all these myths we're talking about, all these misunderstandings, do you think it's really maybe less about the debate over how to combat crime and more about just some people hating guns and the people who own them? Yeah, well, I think it certainly plays a role. Um, you know, I, I think the the cultural aspect of this exacerbates the rest of that conversation. Um, so, so for example, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, most people really are concerned uh, about crime. You know, they they look at what's happening since 2020 when we've seen just massive spikes in violent crime, um, and that's that's concerning to a lot of them, and they really see this as a problem. Uh, and, it, and it really is. But the problem becomes when we have this cultural divide where you, you have a lot of people who who did not grow up with firearms, um, who know nothing at all about firearms, who are sort of predisposed to the idea that that guns are bad based on you know what they've seen on social media or um, you know that their only interaction with guns has been to hear about mass shootings. Um, it, they, it just makes them easy targets, if you will, for more misinformation. Um, that th- this cultural divide sort of makes the the other divides harder, right? So when you have a very real problem that that we all want to address, uh, like gun violence, and you have people who culturally, socially, uh, don't know a whole lot, uh, who are predisposed to you know sort of believing their own camp, quote unquote, uh, with this, it just makes it harder um, because that becomes their default. It is to believe all of these these lies and myths and misinformation that they're getting, um, and it's also easy, right? It, it's easy when you have uh, you know the, the, this this big bad boogeyman who is driving gun violence. When when you have you know the the one easy target to be like, if we just did this, you know, if we just got rid of the gun industry, if we if we just got rid of the PLCAA, um, this would solve all of our our gun violence problems, right? People like that. They, they like this idea of, well, here's this one thing we can do to solve all of our problems. And it's just not reality. Um, so that's sort of my take on it is, you know, you, you have a very real problem that people should be invested in getting into the real reasons for it and, and understanding the reality of it because they want to solve it. And instead, because of this cultural divide, they, they just become easy targets where the culture wards are, are, are allowing this to be exacerbated. Um, they're allowing this conversation to sort of spiral out of control and be unproductive um, because, it again, it just allows people to be targeted by this misinformation um, and, and targeted in a very, frankly, nefarious way. Um, you know, th- this is, I think a lot of gun control advocates know exactly what they're doing by perpetuating these myths. They know that a lot of people simply don't know any better and they're taking advantage of it. And I think that's very unfortunate. Amy, I think that there are some political issues that can be resolved and others that cannot. Now, this is just my theory. Uh, for example, if we look at marijuana, I think the country might actually eventually decriminalize it. We see that already happening to a large extent now. 
you know, the idea of smoking stuff is not really centered on any kind of core moral concept. But, you know, you look at an issue like abortion, which has been debatable basically forever, and it deals with an unreconcilable philosophical, uh, you know, two unrecon- uh, unreconcilable philosophical positions, mm-hmm. life versus autonomy. I, I don't think an issue like that will ever be resolved. So then when we're talking about guns, what do you think? Do you think that that we can ever reach a point when guns are no longer a political issue, when they're not controversial? Can liberals and conservatives eventually come to terms over over something like the Second Amendment? Or do you think it's one of these issues that just can never be resolved? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had an easy answer for you. Um, I, I think you see sort of this back and forth um, uh, I mean, even just in, in the last two years, you you have millions of first-time gun owners who, many of whom are, I mean, the, the demographics of this, it's a lot of liberal first-time gun owners um, or, or a lot of what I call not your usual suspect uh, first-time gun owners, um, women, minorities, um, people who never in their life considered anything about guns, who saw the reality of just how quickly, you know, the, Foundations of civil society can fall apart uh, in in 2020 and and the last couple of years and and just how quickly sort of the police that they've always thought were going to be there that they could rely on uh, well they might not show up <laughs> you know they they might not actually be there and so I think you've seen at least to a slight extent um, because of this reality uh, because of because of more people sort of understanding this reality I think you've seen a broader appreciation for the Second Amendment um, and for an, an understanding of why people own guns in the last couple of years. Uh, but I, I don't know that we're ever going to reach a point where it, it's going to be total, where, where you're just going to have, um, you know, where it would be unthinkable for someone to suggest an assault weapons ban in, in Congress again. Now, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope the Supreme Court, for example, continues taking on some of these more important Second Amendment cases and telling states, look, you, you can't do this anymore. We're actually going to make sure that the Second Amendment is protected to the fullest extent. Um, and, and that eventually, you know, maybe not in my generation, but, you know, for, for my children, uh, that, that we reach a point where we just accept that this is what the Second Amendment means. And uh, I, I just don't, no, I'm 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 cautiously optimistic, um, but I I'm also very much aware of this sort of undertone, this prevailing undertone um, of you know I mean you refer to it as the, the culture wars, but it it, it is I, I think sort of cemented that there is a segment of society that really sees every social ill as being something, well, we need the government to solve this. We can just trust the government. If we all just give up our guns, the government is going to figure it out. You know, the government will always be there to protect us. And I I just unfortunately don't see that 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 view going away. Um, so I, I hope it decreases. I hope more and more people realize that that limited government, personal responsibility, um, enabling Americans to to protect themselves, that this is actually the, the better way of doing it, as well as the constitutional way of, of you know, viewing the Second Amendment. Um, but I, I, I just, I just don't know that it, it ever fully 
goes away, but I hope I'm wrong. I, I really well, hope I'm wrong. I mean, where I'm coming from on this is just historically, uh, you know, guns were never really all that controversial. It really started happening around Prohibition when we started passing laws, and then it was really in the 60s right. after the assassination of JFK that it really started to become political. You know, JFK was an NRA member, for example. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't see anything with the Second Amendment that is linked to the Republican Party or that's linked to conservatism. There's nothing philosophically, you know, in opposition if you're a liberal— to also right. owning a gun, as you mentioned, a lot of liberals buy guns. You know, the classic liberal definition is this idea that you believe in, you know, free markets and personal liberty and and the pursuit of happiness and all that. Well, that that doesn't mean anti-gun. I really think this is a more recent phenomenon, and that's why I'm wondering: could right. someday we, you know, sort of disconnect this argument from, you know, guns are all about. You know, the ultra MAGA folks and guns are all about Republicans and conservatives. That may be the way it is now, but I don't know that it has to be that forever. There's nothing, in other words, essential in the debate that says only one side wants guns. Right. Yeah. And and I I mean, that's. That, that's fair, you know. If you again, if you're if you're looking at this from a historical standpoint, you are absolutely correct that guns didn't used to be controversial. Um, and in fact, I think it shocks a lot of people that that when you look at um, sort of the history of restrictive gun control, it's it's largely a modern phenomenon in the United States. Um, this is not some longstanding tradition, and in fact, it's sort of the, the opposite, right? That that it was sort of presumed you you have a right to keep and bear arms and and that you know guns are just a, a part of life. Um, you know, I, I think some of some of that has to do with um, just in the last hundred or so years uh, that the urbanization of America, um, where guns became less of. I mean, and you see this even in just like declining hunting rates, and um, you, you know where like urban society sort of started associating guns with. Um, like gang activity and violence. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how much of that is reversible in that sense. Uh, but again, I, I hope I'm wrong because you are right. This wasn't historically the, this, this political connotation of like the conservatives have guns. And again, I, I think that's unfortunate um, because if anything, you know, it, it's so clear in the text of the amendment that it is the right of the people. It's not the right of conservatives or the right of liberals or the right of yeah, the right of uh, you know your your middle aged white man living in the, the rural south. It's it's the right of the people. This is the people's right, um, and and that includes you. That includes me. That includes every other law abiding American. Um, and so I I hope you're correct. Um, and like I said, I I want to be cautiously optimistic about it um, that we get back to a a time. Um, that like like we've seen in the past where people across the board understand and, and appreciate this. I, I don't know what that mechanism would look like that gets us to that. Um, or at least not, you know, in, in a in a very quick way. I, I think it's going to take time to re-ingrain that in society. Um, but I again, I, I hope you're correct. I, I hope that's what we start to see. Amy, where can people read your articles on guns and gun rights? Well, you can always follow me on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, it's just at Amy Swear, so at first name, last name. Um, I'd also encourage you to check out our defensive gun use database. 
that also has a Twitter account. It's at DG at DGU Daily, um, or you can uh, check out heritage.org. Um, you, you can read everything that, that I'm writing or, or dailysignal.com, uh, which is sort of our, our multimedia arm of Heritage, um, where you, you can you can read the op-eds that we put out. Um, or if you just you know, go on your search engine and look for a Heritage Defensive Gun Use Database, that'll get you to our interactive database. Um, you, you can see all of the, the many, many defensive gun uses uh, from law-abiding citizens that if you blinked on the nightly news near you, you, you probably missed it. Uh, but far more out there than, than you'd anticipate. So I'd, I'd point you to all those. Um, and I, I really hope you, you give us a look. Amy, thanks for being on the podcast. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thanks again for having me. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.